0: I talk about race and racism and issues of culture. I help people kind of own their stories and narratives in a way that feels empowering. I really center these experiences as necessary building blocks to identity formation. And there's so much richness in it, and there's also so much pain.
1: Welcome to Voices of Esalen, I'm Sam Stern. My guest today is Dr. Han Ren, a practitioner of decolonial mental health. Dr. Ren practices from a justice-oriented, anti-oppressive, systems-informed framework. Some of her specialties include Asian American mental health, anxiety, perfectionism, high achievers, children of immigrants or third culture kids, anti-racism, and parenting. She's also a force to be reckoned with on TikTok amassing a large following on a platform she uses in an attempt to make therapy accessible and applicable to everyday lives. Together we talked about how white supremacy can be internalized, what it looks like when you center BIPOC mental health and treatment, how one decolonizes language, the conceptual shift from a dyadic trauma perspective to a collective societal notion of trauma, and her struggles as a recovering perfectionist. It's a great conversation I'm excited to share, but first this. Money should never be a barrier to transformation. If you're interested in coming to Eslin to learn, be, and explore, we're accepting applications now for Esalen's scholarship program. It features up to 90% coverage of workshop, tuition, and accommodations, as well as travel expenses, and is driven by a commitment to increase diversity. You can also support this amazing program by donating and supporting personal transformation for others. To apply or give, visit www.esslin.visit/scholarships. And now here's my conversation with Dr. Han Ren. Dr. Han Ren, thank you so much for joining us today on Voices of Esalen.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: So during our pre-interview, you suggested that we begin by both of us sharing our identities. I really like mm-hmm. that idea. So how about we do that?
0: Yeah, sounds like a great place to start.
1: I'd like to, to follow your lead because I want to hear how you, how you phrase it and and what stuff that you choose to to speak to.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think there's so many elements to identity and positionality. So I'm just going to um, share a few of my more salient ones. So I identify as a 1.5 generation Chinese American immigrant and a third culture kid. So I was born in China, but I was raised in the U S one foot in each world. Um, My intersectional identities include, I am um, cisgendered, hetero, passing, currently able-bodied, financially secure, average sized neurodivergent, and a woman.
1: What is neurodivergent, Dr. Wren?
0: It's when your brain is a little quirky, you know, so people who have any sort of mental health differences, doesn't have to be mental health differences, just like different ways of looking at the world um, might fall under the category of neurodivergence. So I have ADHD. It's something that was diagnosed with as an adult. um, And it just made a lot of sense in the way that I process information and uh, relate to the world.
1: Mm. And you sort of, you you split the identity, you split the identity talk into two kind of subcategories. And one of the Mm -hmm. categories was intersectional. So Mm -hmm. Can you speak to what intersectional identities kind of are?
0: Yeah, it's you know the crossroads of two identities in which um, your experience is unique, where either either one of those categories will not capture it. So you know, as a woman and as a um, Chinese American, as an immigrant, like any of those one categories. Will not capture my unique experiences. And they're not additive either. They are uniquely different, you know, as a Chinese American woman, for example, as one of, you know, example of intersectionality here for my identities. Um, I have a very different experience than, say, a Chinese American man or a Chinese man or a Chinese woman, you know. So um, it is just sort of the capturing the, the crossroads of, several different identities.
1: Mm, thank you. Yeah, this is great already. I'm, I feel like I'm learning a lot from you. All right, I'm going to I'm going to have a go at it. My name is Sam. Yeah. I'm white, cisgender, hetero, guy, married, father. I am Jewish of the non-religious Jewish type of person, liberal, from the south, and I guess my family has been in United States since the Kind of like typical jewish story of late 1800s or early 1900s coming over from eastern europe Okay. and i'm able-bodied I'm trying to remember all the stuff that you brought out <laughs> it's, it's so cool to to think about all this because a lot of it sort of flies under the radar unless mm-hmm. you deconstruct mm-hmm. it and and pull it out but yes i'm able-bodied and i don't even think about that uh very much mm-hmm. and i would say i'm not too neurodivergent, although raising a two-year-old has made me, made me a little bit.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's a challenge for all brains to raise toddlers. I feel you.
1: <laughs> you have two kids, right?
0: I do have two kids. Yeah.
1: How, how old are they?
0: Uh, they are 10 and almost five. So I'm, I'm a little bit you know further along in that parenting journey where I can say there is some light soon.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Thank you. Well, you are a therapist specializing in working with anxiety, perfectionism, high achievers and children of immigrants. And I've also heard you referred to as a practitioner of decolonial mental health. Could you please speak a bit about your work and how you work?
0: Yeah. So Uh, I work from an anti-oppressive and liberation psychology framework. So that means part of my approach to healing includes examining and questioning the systems of power and oppression in which we live. Um, So I extend the process of healing and mental health in general to beyond the individual. Many times we have these internalized ideals that society places on us, um, especially for overachievers and children of immigrants we tend to internalize capitalistic values that you know w- what our worth is in this world is contingent on our productivity or outcomes. And we tend to also internalize some white supremacy cultural values, especially you know those of perfectionism, sense of urgency, objectivity, superiority based on our intellect. Um, So I help clients better understand where we learned, what we know, and um, whether it still serves us to continue to practice and engage with what we learn from families, society, or structural forces. That way we can just have some agencies have a choice in the values that we want to live by and um, what we want to bring into our future.
1: Hmm. Mm, yeah. So does your client base know about your specialties, uh, be they anxiety, perfectionism, high achievers, and kind of choose to work with you uh, because of this?
0: Yes. Yes. So I think as clients work with me, they find out more about kind of the liberation psychology, anti-oppressive frameworks. Um, That's not something that is as readily salient. But when it comes to like, oh, these are my specialties, like anxiety, stress reduction, perfectionism, um, you know, I I kind of build myself as like, I work, I specialize with overthinking overachievers. Um, And I also am very clear with my clients that I myself identify as a recovering perfectionist. So I have that lived experience of what it looks like and means to kind of, you know, dismantle and challenge my internalized ideals of who and what I should be um, to try to find some balance because generally people are successful, but less happy.
1: So I find that really fascinating. I'd love to dig into a little bit of your journey as a, a self-identifying perfectionist. Mm-hmm. What did it look like when you first discovered that? And what were some of the techniques that you've used to work on it?
0: I think for a lot of perfectionists, um, certainly not all, um, but a lot, it's a trauma response. It's a way that we have learned to cope with, Um, an environment that may not be very safe, um, you know, whether it's physically or relationally. Um, For me personally, I grew up with a lot of attachment disruptions where, you know, my parents left me in China with my grandparents. And then I left China and left my grandparents when I was five to move to the US with my parents. I didn't have any memory of them. And then they were also going through a really messy divorce at that time. And so all of that has impacted the way that I view myself and the world around me and how to stay safe and so perfectionism is like I just need to do what is expected of me and like surpass that and I can gain approval and love and also just you know as Chinese American child. Like there's a lot of that tiger like parenting ideals of like grades are everything. Education is so important. And, you know, school and society really also rewards perfectionism in that way. Cause I achieved really highly at school. And it was easy for me. But I think it was really, gosh, I guess, like, uh, grad school, I was like, Oh, this is this is harder now. And that was, you know, when I got that ADHD diagnosis, because I was finding that, you know, things that I could get by with in college, and even in the workplace, um, just wasn't working when the mental load was that much greater in grad school.
1: Do you have any techniques that you use on sort of like a daily or weekly or monthly basis that enables you, if you find yourself cleaving to that, the old patterns of perfectionism that you can get yourself out of it?
0: Yeah. Um, One thing I do is I just start, you know, whatever it is, like I just start, I just do it. Um, I'll figure it out as I go. I don't have to have everything planned before I go. Um, I do this thing when I'm stressed that I've gotten a lot better at, but you know, my husband calls me out on this a lot. Um, He's like, you're hoarding planning. So I tend to hoard planning when I get really stressed. I'm like, okay, well, I can't control all these things. So what are the things I can control for the next five years? Mm -hmm. And I try to like, come up with this plan. And when I know that a lot of that is, you know, a trauma response is when you don't feel like you have control over your environment, you find every little thing that you can control but generally it doesn't go according to plan because something, one little thing shifts and then your whole, your whole plan is, you know, off the rails. So when I hoard planning, I'm like, okay, what am I going to do today? What am I going to do this weekend? And I can, you know, generally find some comfort in being able to control, you know, more immediate future rather than the next five years. I also really try to make time for play. That's not something that um, we are taught or is really allowed when we, come from this perfectionistic background or like tiger parenting background. But I think play, you know, which is just like enjoyment for the sake of enjoyment and pleasure. Um, it allows your brain to break out of that perfectionistic ideal, you know, where you're creating crafts, not because you want to sell it on Etsy, but because it's fun to do, maybe you never even finish it or, you um, engaging in things that's not competitive or not, you know, if it is competitive, not because you want to be number one or you want to win. And that also took some time to unlearn just to you know, do things for the sake of fun.
1: Well, this kind of brings me to the next question very effortlessly because you are a therapist who's on TikTok and I didn't Ooh. even know that really existed. And I would love to hear you speak a bit about your TikTok practice and whether it in some ways is part of an effort to unlearn perfectionism.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, TikTok is great because it's only one minute. So it's like, I can never do YouTube because I would like agonize over all the editing and like, you know, 15 minutes you get to start all over like, ah, but TikTok is like the whole, platform is so ephemeral. So it's kind of nice. Like you put something out there, maybe it lands, maybe it doesn't, but if it doesn't, like, so what? And that's kind of how I started off was just, you know, it was like six months into this pandemic. I was seeing these other TikTok therapists and I was like, you know, I could do this. Um, And I talked about it for a long time and people were like, why don't you just do it? Um, And I started doing it. And it was my daughter who actually was like, you know, if you can get a thousand followers by the end of your first month, I'll buy you a cake. And I was very motivated by that. I was like, okay, well, let me up my my content game. Um, And then I noticed that, you know, people weren't talking about, um, you know, centering BIPOC mental health and about um, the issues that psychology as a field um, is still in in the, you know, very early stages of reckoning with especially with race and whiteness. And so I just, I threw it out there. I, I, I did it. Um, and so by the end of my first month, I had 20,000 followers. Um, I didn't get my cake though, because she got salty, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's how my, my TikTok journey started. And I've kind of just sort of taken it from there and have been, you know, having a lot of fun with it.
1: Well, one thing I love about it is that you are able to use this platform in order to introduce elements of mental health that you find interesting and in that I think are, they're very potent and you've been able to present it in a really approachable, positive way. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. a little too loaded way to, um, to describe it, but when I was checking out your, your videos on your page, I was able to absorb them. You have one video where you say, if you're a white therapist and your client has not brought up race, they're still thinking about it. Name the power differential in the room, make the space safe, don't wait for people to tell us that it's safe, show us that it is.
0: Listen up white therapists, this one is for you. Y'all have no idea how often I hear this. Personally, professionally, in my comments, just because a person of color is not bringing up race does not mean that they are not thinking about it. We are always acutely aware of our race and the makeup of the room. It's part of how we assess for safety. So if you're a white therapist and your client of color hasn't brought up race and you think it's because they're comfortable and not thinking about it, think again. This is why it's imperative for white therapists to bring up race and whiteness. Your client's not always gonna feel safe to do so. Name the power differential that's in the room. Say, hey, I know I'm white and you're a person of color and our lived experiences are different. What's it like to be sharing with me today? Do not put it on your clients to bring up the racial trauma. Make the space safe so that they feel okay to bring it up. And do not only count on therapists of color to do this work. We need allies and co-conspirators in this. We're tired. This applies, too, if you want to be a white friend to people of color. Don't wait for us to tell you it's safe. Show us that it is. Yeah, so um, a lot of times people tell me, you know, in in my comments and in my own therapy sessions with past therapists, my friends, my DMs, people, you know, come up to me and I say, like, I have this white therapist or I have this white therapist and I, and I don't feel like I can bring up race because they never brought up race. Do you think I should just like find a new therapist or what, what should I do about this? You know, a big part of it has to do with not feeling like they have permission or that whole parts of their identity will be held with care. Should they bring up race? They don't want to offend whoever they're talking to or, you know, bring up a lot of like fragility and push back and like be gaslit about it. Um, so, you know, and I also have white people telling me that they want to talk about race with their clients or their friends and show them like, I, I want, I'm, I'm working on this. I'm, I'm trying to make it safe or safer, but you know, I don't want to make them uncomfortable by bringing up race and I don't know how to bring it up. And so this becomes this elephant in the room, you know, what we resist persists. So when we name the elephant in the room, just by highlighting our identity, it's kind of like, You know what you and I did, Sam, at the beginning of this this recording. We can sort of identify the some inherent power differentials that exist in the room and that are associated with our identities and intersectionalities, Um, and that way we can make the the room safer and just have a little bit more space to talk about what these elements mean for our lived experiences, the places that our experiences converge and diverge, as well as you know our relationships with each other. Um, and it's not like you're coming from a, an inherent power differential, um, even though there are structural power differentials that are associated with it. But by naming it, it kind of flattens that hierarchy a little bit because we're just aware of where you know our differences land. And certainly, Continue the conversation beyond that. This is a starting point, not the whole conversation.
1: So you use the term um, gaslit uh, mm-hmm. in in your description. What does it look like when a therapist gaslights their client, specifically around issues of race?
0: Almost always because of their own discomfort and good intentions. So I want to highlight this is not done out of malice, but the impact is still very dismissive. So, you know, some examples are... Um, I I think everybody is important and I have worked with clients of all different races and they have all appreciated my guidance and interventions and you know, I don't actually really consider race because we're all humans we're just all one race the human race. Or to say something um, like, oh, yes, you are Asian. Um, You know, actually, my uh, cousin's best friend is Chinese. And, you know, we Uh go and eat at their family's restaurant all the time. So actually, I know a lot about Asian people. Or, you know, the best, the worst, I don't know. Um, (laughs) I often get with white men, especially, they're like, oh, let me tell you about my Chinese wife. And I'm like, I don't care about your Chinese wife, <laughs> you know? They think like, oh, I got an in, I got some clout. And, you know, those are, those are you know, well-intentioned um, ways of making conversation or trying to find commonalities, but then they're, they're gaslighting and they're dismissive because they, you know, collapse and reduce you know, a person's identity to just their race. And they kind of presume that like every one of that race have the same lived experiences or, you know, similar worldviews. And that can be really harmful, especially in a ther- therapy setting, when you want to really uplift and um, hold and nurture what's unique about each individual client.
1: Mm, yeah. So sort of piggybacking uh, uh, on this answer that you've given, you had another really cool TikTok video where you encouraged mental health professionals to be humble with regards to their own cultural competencies. And you encourage therapists to get education around their clients, specific cultures, and not mm-hmm. from the clients themselves, as obviously it's not their job to educate their own therapists. Can yes. you talk a bit about how that process might work?
0: Yeah, um, I was thinking about this question earlier and I I just came up with a really great example. Um, So I I was working with this gay man for several years and, you know, like sex would come up, but like kind of in passing and um, it's not something that he like really went into depth with um, until he like exited a a long-term relationship and is now, you know, Playing the field more sexually. And he brought up, like, well, I didn't want to bring this up with you because I don't know if you know the ins and outs of gay sex. Like, there's a lot of preparation work and just a lot of terminology and like activities that like most cis women might not know of. And so I was like, that's a wonderful example of this because I'm not going to ask him, like, well, spell it out for me, you know? Like, I'm going to go and do my own research. I'm going to talk to my gay friends. I'm going to do some reading. I'm going to find out the ins and outs of gay sex and, you know, queer sex in general, which is not something that a lot of us know much about. And so that's, that's cultural, even though it's not racial. Um, And again, it was on me to do that legwork so I can meet him where he's at. And he doesn't have to over explain, you know, whatever it is that he wants to share with me.
1: Mm, Yeah, that's, that's really cool. So do you find that you often engage in the process of research kind of inspired by this new relationship that, that you're building?
0: Oh, yes, all the time. I've gone down some real deep rabbit holes about things that, you know, maybe I wouldn't have explored on my own. This is especially true for like adolescents where their hobbies and their friends and their, you know, pop culture interests are so crucial to how they identify and relate to each other. So For a while there, when I was working in an adolescent inpatient, you know, I listened to a lot of Screamo and discovered a lot of different Screamo bands so I can talk music with my clients and, you know, discover what it was that really resonated with them about each of those artists.
1: Speaking of adolescents, are your clients ever aware of your presence as a popular TikTok video creator, or is it something that? you use as a way to to bring up these these topics to a general populace
0: um it's more of a general populace when i first started because it was like such a funny thing i was like oh haha i'm on tiktok now you know but now i feel like it's a little bit odd to like bring it up but generally i've had several clients come like oh i saw your buzzfeed article or hey my my partner's friend shared one of your videos on instagram and they're kind of like oh i didn't know that you like had this whole other the world going on but you know especially as I'm kind of examining um you know the distribution of like my clinical work versus my content creation versus other work you know sometimes I have to be a little tighter with boundaries and you know not taking on new clients and that that's when some of that comes out it's like oh yeah I'm taking you know a a go off from seeing clients, but I'm, I'm still working on well, what are you working? On? Okay. I'm making some content or working on my book or whatever. So, um, you know, so it's, it's becoming a little bit more integrated as part of, um, the sessions. And I'm not one of those blank slate sl- or uh, therapists therapist where I <laughs> refuse to talk about myself entirely, but I try to make it relevant to, um, my client's life. And, you know, some of, some, some of them want to talk a little bit more about like, well, oh, what's going on in your world and others.
1: Yeah, I'm curious about the because some of the juiciest videos really are around this liberation psychology. How do your clients react to the videos or to the topic of liberation psychology? What is it like in in process and in practice with them?
0: Mm. Um you know, I don't know if all of them have seen that content. So I'm not I'm not sure, but you know, race, and, um, you know, more of that kind of like, yeah, I guess, like, working from a liberation psychology framework is something that is very much integrated into our work together, you know, where we talk about, like, their golden handcuffs with, you know, their cushy jobs with lots of perks, but then they are exhausted. And then, you know, we bring up the notions of capitalism in that and like also the dialectics of capitalism we this is a system in which we exist and live but it's also in a lot of ways harming us so we can't ignore that when we talk about our mental health and I'm not saying like just quit your job but how do we work within the system in a way that preserves our sanity and so they're, they're certainly aware of, you know, my stance and my, you know, my politics, I guess, just from work with me. And I, I, I don't hold that back from them, because I do think it's an important part of how we work. And, and you know, there's been a few clients who we've had really different um, politics. And depending on where we are in our work together, and you know, what, I perceive their readiness is um, for change and also for what they need me to be to them, I will you know, either share more or less um, depending on their readiness.
1: What does it look like when you center BIPOC mental health in treatment?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I talk about race and racism and issues of culture and what it's like to engage with um, predominantly white institutions, how the culturals are different when, you know, um, uh, workplaces reward extroversion over introversion, and um, more of this like gregarious Western ideal of this like bubbly worker versus, you know, a more reserved someone with an Asian background. Um, I talk about differences in relating to different people that they have in their life and whether race can play a role in that and whether culture plays a role in that. I talk about their experiences as children of immigrants or first generation immigrants themselves, or, you know, descendants of immigrants. I talk about trauma and the way that oppression in um, communities of culture and color can you know, manufacture trauma and how Im- every immigration story is a trauma story, really. And I really center these experiences as necessary building blocks to identity formation. They're neither good nor bad, they just are. And there's so much richness in it, and there's also so much, you know, pain in it. And so, Um, I help people kind of own their stories and narratives in a way that feels empowering um, and gives them agency over what they want to bring into their future based on what they understand about themselves and how they have learned um, to operate under these systemic forces.
1: Do you seek answers about the meaning of life or what it means to be happy from the broadest possible perspective? R.D. Lang in the 21st Century, August 30th to September 3rd, is a workshop at Esalen exploring the practical aspects of Lang's legacy. This workshop is best suited for those familiar with Lang, at one time the most widely read psychiatrist in the world. His take on altered states, the nature of love, authenticity, and spirituality forms the foundation for workshop leaders Michael Guy Thompson, Nita Gage, and Fritjof Capra. Explore fundamental happiness through experiential exercises for modern life. Register now at esalen.org slash workshops. Can you talk a little bit about how one might internalize white supremacy in this society?
0: Oh, yeah, so many ways. Um, <laughs> there's so many, you know, white supremacist cultural values that we don't even... See as white supremacist cultural values, right? Like you, like the notion of objectivity. Like, is anything clearly objective? Well, you look at like artificial intelligence, and that's supposed to be a, objective, but it's not because the programmers who made them were not objective. You know, you t- look at science. Well, who were the sample? What kind of? Um, where did they re- recruit the sample from? Is is you know, so it might be objective for this demographic. Is it objective to everybody? Um, a, a sense of urgency, like in in white supremacy culture, it's like, everything's got to be responded to immediately, the idea of timeliness, like we've got to decolonize time as a construct, like not everything has to be exactly on time. And you know, that that requires people to like, not go to the bathroom, not eat, you know, this idea of defensiveness, you know, when when we feel like, triggered, we're, we, we immediately go into like, okay, well, that's not what I meant. And then this is how you know, trying to protect ourselves, like the CYA, like cover your ass culture. Um, this idea of worship of the written word. Are, are you a good communicator? Are, are you able to express yourself in writing? Well, not everyone expresses themselves that way. Some people are excellent storytellers, and their stories are more narrative, or like time is more circular in, in the way they express their ideas. This idea of... Um, quantity over quality we're always striving for more and bigger and better and you know we we don't ever really are satisfied with like enoughness you know the opposite of scarcity is not abundance it's enoughness and so all of these these ideals that like make like make america great in so many ways can also really make america harmful in lots of ways
1: do you feel that you internalized white supremacy culture as a child or an adolescent? And if so, have you been able to kind of break free from that as an adult in any ways?
0: Absolutely. You know, as a, as a, you know, Chinese American immigrant, it was like, you know, even though the world, the word America means beautiful country, it was just like, oh my gosh, this beacon. And then the fact that I had access and opportunity here, I was like, I got to bust my ass. So I chased that American dream um and so you know partially it was my parents trauma of like we gave up everything to give you this opportunity you have to you have to reach these these goals but also like I don't want to disappoint them but then you know I had also really internalized this is what a good and happy life looks like this is what success looks like I got to get these degrees I got to get married I got to have kids like all of these um internalized ideals that like know my in my 20s i remember i had this like index card that posted on my mirror and it was like my daily like motto and affirmation and it just said always moving forward and it was this like stick figure like running (laughs) and i mean and that was how i lived my life and i felt like oh yeah i I checked all of these boxes off but like when i turned 30 i felt this like immense grief because i was like was I even present for any of it? Was I even aware of any of it? You know, like I got the degree, I got the house, I got the kid, I got the husband, but then it's like, now what, right? If you are always just trying to check things off, then you'll never be satisfied. And so I feel like I've spent the last decade of my life, you know, really, I think more like the last five years since I've felt more permission in having my own practice to just like run it however I want mm. um, to try to dismantle and unlearn some of that but it is so hard and I have so much more to do and such a ways to go. Um, but I am, I am aware of a lot of um, a lot of this and how it continues to live in me. Like I still, I suck at resting. I suck at re- relaxing. You know, when I'm, when I'm resting, it's still like, I'm still, my mind is always going and I still want to like make a craft at least I want to do something. Uh-huh. Um, I'm not good at, being still, I don't like to meditate, you know, so it's, it's hard to unlearn all of these things. And I think that's, you know, probably going to be my, my life's journey and, um, something I'm working on forever.
1: What would you say is your most controversial video that you've posted on there? And what have some of the interactions with audience members been like?
0: Oh gosh, there's several that are really controversial. Um, my, my first controversial one was um, how psychology is written in white supremacy, which is a series I have, you know, several videos on. And people are like, why don't you go to your own research then? Go back where you came from, you know? It, it's just, ugh. Um, People are just very defensive and um, fragile about that. Or just, like, the word white supremacy makes some people just really prickly. Like, you know, they just really associate it with, like, you know neo-nazis which is you know one type but it's like white supremacy as an ideology is just you know culture really normative culture um another really um controversial one was on spanking that was really surprising to me Um, because there were so many people who were like, I was spanked and I came out fine, you know, spoil the rods, or no, it was it, spare the rod, spoil the child. Like all of the conservative biblical ideas around spanking came out. And that was like, really, really disheartening of just like, you know, people will get into these huge arguments of like, well, you're the one who deserves to be beat like vitriolic stuff, you know?
1: Wow. Um, What, What point of view did you put forward on, on spanking?
0: I shared this Harvard study that came out that looked at um, fMRI data of brains of children who had been spanked versus children who had been severely abused and showing that there's not much differences in the brain and, you know, the parts of the brain that gets activated and that, you know, the sphere response gets activated in children who are mildly spanked and never really abused. Um, So it's just saying that, like, just don't do it. It's like not not you know there's better ways and it's not going to bode well um but that was highly controversial um and I think like the most more recent oh gosh there's so many there's just there's so much um (laughs) one one video that came out that was kind of controversial that was kind of surprised was like different words to use of like you know instead of using um tribe use my people um and uh it was just like a very short 15 second clip where i'm like pointing in the air and just like I love that, some one. Music, that one that was cool know? that
1: was like you well let me see you you instead of powwow you say meeting or yeah brainstorm. yeah instead but man of spirit that animal, was say, mm-hmm. let's go ahead
0: yeah, the the patronus persona, but I mean, every single word that I said instead had some sort of backlash, um, and so it was so interesting because it was like people were like, "You can't police language. Every single word has evolved from other language, from um, you know Latin and German, and and you know the the English language is not original." Um, and then like you know some of the words I suggested as alternatives were actually also like not great alternatives. Um, people were like. Don't use persona because the furries community is marginalized. Okay, <laughs> or like don't use patronus because J.K. Rowling is a turf. Like, you know, so all of these things. It's like wow, like people just have some very strong feelings, and then also people were just like, you know, this is like performative allyship. This is like fake activism. You, this is the definition of a first world problems so when you're trying to police people's language. You shouldn't you be don't you have better things to do with your time? Um, And so, you know, that's, that's when I really realized like, gosh, not enough or too much always.
1: Wait, I want to give you, I want to give you the platform for a second to tell me why, why decolonizing language matters. Why do words matter?
0: I think, you know, certainly there are words that have historically been used to oppress, marginalize and harm people. And those are certainly words that we do not want to use in our, in our day to day language, um, and you know in that video I didn't include like overtly harmful words, but they're just words that like, I think I want to use less of because now I know the roots of it, you know, for example, like mantra is a specific set of Hindu prayers. And so I don't want to say, like, oh, my morning mantra, like I can say my morning motto, or my morning affirmation, because that's really what I mean. Um, or, you know, spirit animal is like very sacred to a lot of indigenous tribes. So I'm not going to say that when I really mean like the animal that I resonate with is a meerkat or whatever, or the animal that I like. Um, So it's really just paying homage and respect to um, some groups' value and um, sacredness that they place in their language. Um, But certainly not everyone is going to identify the same type of meaning and nobody is a monolith. So no group is a monolith.
1: Yeah, I I find this really interesting. And I I think part of the reason why it's, can be very hurtful for, for groups is that they might feel that you've stolen so much from our culture already. So the added aggression of stealing a word or, or appropriating this word sort of like brings us back to that originary trauma of perhaps being enslaved or, you know, many, many things. To me, it makes sense. I mean, I love language and words and the play that goes on uh, there. And so, you know, if pleasure can come from words, I know that pain can, can come from words too. And it kind of brings us back to this white supremacy culture that we live in. Although we have so many diverse peoples within this one culture, we can't pretend that we're all in this sort of like uh homogenous kind of plane. It's, it's not like that.
0: Yeah. Same storm, different boats. Say that again. We're on the same storm, but we're in different boats. You know, like some people are in like cruise ships, like just sipping their pina coladas, and some people are like on little rafts, just trying to like row for their lives.
1: So, one thing that that's come up over the course of our discussion several times is this uh, notion of trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you speak a bit about how you might approach trauma in your work and this? this kind of shift from the more accepted notion of dyadic trauma perspective to a collective societal concept of trauma?
0: Yeah. I I think this is such an important shift to talk about, especially in the field of psychotherapy, because so much of, you know, trauma work is focused on like this dyadic notion of trauma, like this thing, this big thing happened to you. Um, Even just like trauma from like big T, like singular event trauma to um, more complex trauma, which is, you know, trauma with a little T of, you know, ongoing, persistent, um, lower degrees of trauma. Um, and, you know, it's, it's kind of shifting this notion of like, trauma is this like, major thing that happened to you, or like, you know, who you were with or not with when trauma happens, which is also part of it, but also like, who is your community and what did they go through, you know, and and how did they thrive and um, find healing and and wisdom and peace in the face of adversity and hardship. And then that also speaks to this idea of generational trauma and then generational healing and wisdom. Um, And so it just really zooms out from this this lens of trauma of what, what we conceptualize as trauma. You know, in some ways it's like, it's normalizing and like affirming to like, oh, you know what, it's all trauma, right? But in other ways, it's like, oh, shit, it's all trauma. Um, but it it, it, it you know, paints this, this picture of like, we have all gone through a lot of really hard things in our lives. And, you know, it, it normalizes trauma as part of human development and growth. And so it's not like we can't overcome or heal or grow from these things. But also, we can't just pretend they didn't happen or like lump them into this, like, you know, what's happened in the past is in the past perspective. If we really want to be able to learn and grow and thrive from what we have lived through.
1: So let's say that you have a client who is affected by this collective societal trauma. What's a way that you can help them?
0: No, gosh, that's such a such a big question. I think we're all affected by this collective societal trauma, you know, especially this past year. I mean, this pandemic was such a collective trauma. Um, I think, you know, first normalizing, like how trauma lives in the body, how trauma shows up in relationships, you know, what are the evolutionary basis and biology of trauma, you know, giving some psycho right around like polyvagal theory for example of like this is what's going on in your nervous system when you get activated you know at the initial trauma and then with the triggers um giving people language to describe their experiences is so empowering especially when we're talking about these collective forces that are going on and also like complex trauma of like maybe you didn't go through like a singular event but you know this whole your whole childhood was you know low level emotional neglect for example um that, that that's a such an empowering place to start. Um, and then from there, you know, getting to know one's own specific triggers and reactions a bit better. How does your body get activated under what circumstances and how do you know that's going to happen? And what can you do to soothe yourself, you know, either by yourself or, you know, in a better case, you know, with dyadically or in community in relationship to others, because what's um, harmed in, Communities have to be healed in communities. So when we're talking about collective trauma like this, we have to talk about how do we heal a collective group of people by amplifying and um, promoting, you know, connections and art and culture and food and dance and like all the things that like, you know, nourish our souls, you know, by seeking safety in each other.
1: You're a parent to two young kids, as you described mm-hmm. before. How does the work that you do in decolonizing mental health influence the way that you want to speak to your kids and ultimately raise them?
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's it colors everything that I that I do, you know. Um it's funny, like when, when my kids want to kind of roast me, you know, it's like, oh, there's a new movie. Do you think mommy wants to see it? I don't know, is it on racism? Nah, no, she probably doesn't want to see it, you know, so they kind of, like, they know that this is a big part of, you know, my my work and what I'm passionate about, um, but also, like, they, they embody it in ways that, like, surprise me and, like, you know, make me so proud, like, one, um, my daughter, when she was in, I think, like, first or second grade, they were watching a Pearl Harbor video, and someone's like, why did your people have to do that? And she's like stood up for a She's like, first of all, they are Japanese and I am Chinese. So that's not my people. Second of all, even if I was Japanese, what they did has nothing to do with who I am now. I mean, she like, there was a comeback, you know, and she feels empowered to do that because we are talking about these issues all the time. And we are talking about how how we relate to the media that we consume, um, you know, they, you know, just like any 10 year old, she watches a lot of YouTube, but then we talk about like, what, what does that mean? And what is that a stereotype? Um, and where did you get this idea about, you know, certain size bodies and, and whatever else, like we um, spent a lot of time deconstructing that. And, you know, it's also really made me aware of like, how I talk about my own biases and how I am you know, hold those in awareness, especially around, you know, if I'm like frustrated at something, right? And when we're frustrated, our, our all our implicit biases come out, and we make generalizations about whatever it is that we're frustrated at. And, you know, I have to catch myself sometimes, or I have to course correct and say, like, actually, I said that in anger, what I actually mean is this. And so, I think there's, there's some drawbacks to like having a psychologist mom too, because it's all the feelings, right? We're always talking about feelings, um, but there's no feeling or idea that is like not acceptable in my family. You know, they, they know to ask questions about everything and they know that I'll give them a pretty straight um, and developmentally appropriate answer to it because it's part of, you know, respecting their personhood and um, respecting that they'll be able to integrate the pieces in a way that makes sense to them as they grow.
1: Mm, mm, mm. Well, I can empathize with them. I grew up with a psychologist parent. My, my father <laughs> is, it still is a psychoanalyst and uh, yeah, there's a, ultimately, I think it was, it was great. You know, there's some weirdness. We had, he had a home office and I had people mm-hmm. coming mm-hmm. over. I'm like playing basketball and clients show up in the driveway. Hey, what's up? Um, (laughs) but there was that feeling that you know nothing was really off the table it's like hey this is what I do for a living is talk with talk to people and draw them out so Mm -hmm. that was fun Uh, I like that that answer so I was wondering we have a little bit of time left if you would want to go through a speed round with me and you don't have to be sure you don't have to be super short in your answers or whatever but I just have little little quickies yeah what's your secret superpower what's one thing that you're really good at that maybe not many people know about
0: mm. you know i'm actually really socially awkward <laughs> and people people don't you know get that sense for me i'm i'm ex- i'm a- extrovert I'm a socially awkward extrovert where I love people um but I'm actually like kind of socially awkward but I am able to harness that awkwardness into like a mutual awkwardness and I talk about it I name it and then we're like best buddies and we're able to connect from there and so um yeah, I think that's that's probably my superpower. I can name whatever awkwardness is in the room and then use it to you know, our collective advantage in building a connection or a bridge with someone.
1: Oh, that's huge. That's good. You live in Texas. What's the best and worst thing about Texas?
0: Oh, gosh. Um, I live in Austin, Texas, which is a little bit different than the rest of Texas. Um, that's probably one of my favorite things about it is that I do feel very for the most part, safe in my, in my city. Um, it's a very progressive, inclusive place. Uh, I think there is, you know, some optical allyship here, though, you know, people think because we're so progressive, um, that they don't have more work to do, or that, you know, microaggressions aren't happening. Um, I think there's actually a lot of work to do, you know, who are the most, um, the, the safest liberals here, are they're, probably the white-skinned, able-bodied, upper middle class ones. And so um I think underneath that veneer, there's there is still a lot of work that gets buried because, you know, we're this spot of blue and a sea of red.
1: What would you do for work if you weren't a psychotherapist?
0: Mm. I I always thought that I'd be really good at marketing or like a pharmaceutical sales rep. Like I want to like wear like cute outfits and like you know, use my like woo skills, like winning over others and, um, have a quick little spiel and then like, get out of there.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think you could do that. Well, what is one self-care tactic that you use in order to prevent burnout?
0: Mm. Exercise is really important. Um, I have to be getting my heart rate up at least three to five times a week. Um, and I, and I protect that time. Um, I, I do it at night after I put my son to bed. And that's, that's just such a essential part of my wellness routine is, you know, getting my body moving where It's like more, it's like a moving meditation for me because I'm not so good at the sitting meditation.
1: Hmm. How do you know when your clients are done and they don't need psychotherapy anymore?
0: We talk about it. Um, because everyone's relationship to therapy is different. You know, some people are like, yeah, things are good, but I want to have you, you know, in my resources in case things aren't good, because they're not always going to be good. And so then we maybe scale back to like bi weekly or monthly or just do like check ins. And then, um, you know, when things get rough in the future, then they have someone they have this pre established relationship with. Um, I, I kind of think of it as like, what's well, like a chiropractor, right? Like, you don't always have a backache, but you want to make sure someone um, knows your body that you have someone on call, if you do have a backache. Um, But then there's also some people who just come in and they do a piece of work, and then they have some um, symptom reduction and some relief, and then they're good. And they say, okay, we're, I don't need you anymore. So um, I I like to think of it as, you know, even for the people who are more long term, um, I like to remind my clients, like, you know, you can take me with you. Like when you're in these difficult situations, like what would Han say? And, you know, kind of like, think through some of those scenarios. So like they kind of get to internalize this, like, secure attachment and, and healthy relationship with them and use it as like a model and template for other relationships they form in their life, whether it's with a different therapist, or they move to a different place, or, you know, even in um, you know, the relationships with future partners or friends, like, you know, you want to feel heard and safe and, and good in, you know, your relationships and if I can set a model for that, then, you know, that's how I know I'm doing my job. Mm.
1: Dr. Han Ren, it's been such a pleasure to chat with you today, learn from you. I, I so appreciate the way that you are showing up in the world. Would you please let our listeners know how to find you on social and in the world?
0: Yeah, you can find me on TikTok and Instagram uh, as Dr. Han Ren. Um, My website is drhanren.com, currently under construction, but soon to go live. Um, And you can always email me too. And that's, you know, on my, on my pages.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much for having me. This was a blast.
1: Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Michelle McCrary and Peter Kobabe. Our music is by Nico Holloman. Join Russ Hudson, renowned Enneagram expert, and Dr. Deborah Egerton, diversity and inclusion specialist, also known as the Enneagram Jedi, in an incredible new program at Esalen, August 15th to 20th. Register at esalen.org slash workshops. If you're liking the show, please, please subscribe. And if you want to reach out, send me an email at voices at Until next time, be well.